morning and welcome to Rising. We have another amazing show for you today. Got some great guests, including Alan Dershowitz, who will react to the Colorado ruling with respect to Donald Trump's eligibility for the presidency. We've also got Julian Assange's lead attorney here to talk to us about the CIA spying case we discussed yesterday. And an old Rising regular, Zaid Jelani, will be back to give us some new reporting. So that's exciting. That is a really great lineup, Robbie. But first, the Biden campaign came out swinging yesterday, comparing Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler. His team posted on X, this is not a coincidence. The graphic directly compares Trump quotes with Hitler quotes, with one of Trump's reading, quote, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country, next to Hitler's quote, which reads, contamination of the blood by an inferior race will lead to the fall of Germany End quote. The former president has been accused of ramping up Hitler-like rhetoric, referring to enemies as vermin, and his comments about migrants. Let's watch the latter. Country, when they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. Uh, the crime is going to be tremendous. The terrorism is going to be. Terrorism is going to be. And we built a tremendous piece of the wall. After the backlash, Trump doubled down on these comments. Let's watch. They dump them on the border and they pour into our country and nobody's there to check them. And the Border Patrol is incredible, by the way. They want to do it, but they're told not to do their job. It's crazy what's going on. They're ruining our country. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. You know, they're coming from all over the world, people all over the world. We have no idea. They could be healthy. They could be very unhealthy. They could bring in disease that's going to catch on in our country. But they do bring in crime. But they have them coming from all over the world. And here is CNN's Jim Acosta reacting to that. I listened to Donald Trump talking about Hitler and Mein Kampf. I almost wonder if I've had too much NyQuil the night before. I mean, it, it is... It's a little fever dreamy. It's a little strange. Yeah. And we should note when he says, well, I, I haven't read Mein Kampf. I don't own a copy of Mein Kampf. I mean, we should note there was a 1990 Vanity Fair article where, you know, it was reported that Ivana Trump, his first wife, said Donald Trump had a book of Hitler quotes. And so this has come up in biographies about Donald Trump, people talking about Donald Trump, his past and so on, that he has had something of a fascination with Adolf Hitler. Ready to not def defend Trump, but to point out that you don't have to have read Mein Kampf or to be directly citing his H Hitler to be speaking in language that is concerning because it is the same kind of language that Hitler used. Because there's two projects that can both be happening independently with the same purpose of vilifying a group of people to set them up for pogroms or policies that disproportionately hurt and attack them. But that was before I heard that he actually had a book of Hitler quotes. Well, that's according to, what, his first wife, Ivana Trump? I mean, she repudiated a lot of things she said about him. They went through a messy divorce. I don't know. I yes. believe more than just that. She re the repudiation itself comes under some scrutiny. 
Um, it happened when he was running for president, and there were allegations that there was basically a, a pay payments made to keep her silent and an agreement between the two of them. Right. So maybe she was lying when she was seeking the payments. Maybe she was lying after she got but the payments. But this was I years no and years and years ago, long before his presidential ambitions. They're saying this was in the 90s that she accused him of this. Right, but they, she got a divorce settlement. They had a... I, I have no idea. I... There are a lot of people who get divorced and a lot of thing, ugly things that I don't are said think in Trump divorces. Reads. I don't think that most people's spouses go for, oh, yeah, and the book of Hitler quotes. That's a weird okay. one just to I don't, pull out of the I noggin. I was assured by, actually, by the mainstream media that Trump is basically illiterate and doesn't read very much, and he claims he never reads, so I was going to leave it at that. I think he probably got this blood poisoning stuff from, like, a meme on True Social is my, is my guess. Oh, where do they get it from? Well, they might get it from my confidence. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the problem. It's really not about whether you can trace like a cognitive chain of custody back to literal mind comp. The problem is we talk about this in the context of um, Israeli statements about people of Palestine. When you start saying that an entire group of people is bad, that their blood will pollute your um, nation, that they are physiognomically, cognitively, intellectually inferior, and that they shouldn't be mixing with the population. Those are eugenics arguments. And eugenics arguments lead to eugenicist that's policies. Okay. And that's the critique. Regardless of if, if Hitler never existed and never said any of those things, there are enough examples in the history of the world of people using that language and where it leads to raise concern. I agree we should talk about the policy aspect of it, because I don't think he's deliberately mimicking Hitler. I mean, Trump, whatever. If you think, if people, there are some people watching, there are some people out there who think Trump is like Hitler but worse, um, and maybe he's going to be president again. Despite that, I don't think, I don't think anyone is being turned away from Trump at this, at this point by the media yelling at them louder that Trump is Hitler. Um, I do think, I don't know that he's helping himself by making these, by talking about poisoning the blood, because these are real issues. Crime is a real issue, um, how to deal with the mentally ill population, how to, you know, how to assimilate people, all those things. Now, as I've said before, I don't think crime is particularly an immigration issue. Um, maybe terrorism could be conceivably, but, you know, he talks about our jails and our—I mean, our jails are being filled up by immigrants because they've committed the crime of immigration, the illegal immigrants. The mental health facilities aren't being filled up by immigrants. I mean, if you see—if you live in cities with large— um, mentally ill populations, or you know, people committing crimes on the street. It's it's not. It's just not disproportionately immigrants. It is people who are born in this country who have tremendous problems that we need to do more about. And if Trump has solutions to them, I want to hear them. But just like trying to fortress America, we would still have so many of these problems we're talking about. And and that's where I think he goes astray. Yeah. What does it mean to poison the blood of a country? I think he means to make the if we're personifying the country, it is to make the country ill, to make it weaker, to make it poorer or more sickly. What? Hmm. You're saying to poison the purity of the white race is what is intended. Is that the? I mean, that's what some people are saying. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm just. I I can't imagine. I'm trying to wrap my head around why someone would use that kind of language. Um, it assumes a kind of pre-existing purity in the United States of America that needs to be preserved. It's the health and vitality. Well, I, if he's making an argument that America is a healthy and vital country, then he's way off the mark. And I wish he would talk way more about health care reform than about the harms, the alleged harms that undocumented people are causing in the United States of America. Yeah.
Yeah, it, it seems like a really easy space not to go into. It seems like a really easy correction to make if people point out how this kind of commentary can be read so poorly. Uh, but instead of, of hearing people point out that his language sounds very much like one of the most notorious villain, villainous person, people who's ever walked the earth, Adolf Hitler, in correcting course, he's chosen to double down. And so I think people have a right to read into that as well. Even if it were an error, and people make errors, you can say RFK Jr. made an error when he made his you know, Holocaust mm -hmm. analogy at the um, at that rally in D.C. People make errors and they correct course all the time. That is not what Donald Trump did here. He was told, "Hey, what you're saying sounds a lot like Hitler," and he got right back up at the podium and said, "I said what I said." Yeah, and he's never suffered any political consequence for it within his that's right. within his coalition. That's and right. uh, I mean, that that's that's just who he is, and his supporters either don't care or they like that about him. Uh, now, I will say Nikki Haley is surging somewhat at the moment, and if I was advising Donald Trump, I would say, all your people are lined up behind you. You can only make them so pumped and so excited to vote for you. They're all going to do it. If you got to bring new people into the coalition because it wasn't enough last time, you can just hope they're all Biden's people going to stay home because they're so upset with him, which might work. But ideally, you would bring in some people who don't like the economic situation, who missed their lives before COVID, um, and, 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 and who maybe regret, uh, or don't regret or don't, don't want Biden anymore, think he's old, out of touch, um, bring them into the fold. And you would win them over, not with this kind of rhetoric, but by offering some kind of affirmative policy agenda for the, for the swing, the moderate, the independent voters in Arizona and Georgia and elsewhere. That would be my advice to him, but he is free to ignore it <laughs> and do whatever he wants and, uh, you know, talk about blood. Blood. <laughs> Maybe, it was, Maybe it was a vampire. Maybe it was a Dracula kind of reference. If only that would be a more, a more innocent world we'd mm. uh, uh, <laughs> be uh, living in. All right. rising after this. Fallout over the Colorado Supreme Court decision to bar President Trump from the ballot continues to rock the nation. Conservative commentators like Tucker Carlson were quick to decry the move as the end of democracy. Here's a little bit of Carlson's monologue from yesterday's show. Take a listen. Despite the fact Donald Trump has never been convicted by any court of insurrection, and although the 14th Amendment specifically does not apply to the presidency, Donald Trump cannot run for president because he's an insurrectionist. This seemed like lunacy, because it was lunacy. 3,000 miles away in El Salvador, there was no question about what was happening. The United States has lost its ability to lecture any other country about, quote, democracy, wrote Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele. And yet in this country, no one on the left dared say that. Instead, Donald Trump's enemies celebrated the Atlantic Magazine expressed gratitude that unelected judges had, quote, rescued the country from the desires of voters, because actually, that's democracy. Conservatives seemingly have good reason to fear this could become a trend, as following Colorado's move to oust Trump from the ballot, 16 more states filed lawsuits to do the same. Michigan, Oregon, New Jersey, Wisconsin, Alaska, Arizona, Nevada, and New York are just a few states where lawsuits to remove Trump's name from the ballot have made their way to the courts. The country is split on Colorado's decision, as The Hill reports. More than half of Americans do approve of the Colorado Supreme Court ruling to bar former President Trump from the state's primary ballot, according to a YouGov poll. 
Meanwhile, Trump and his legal team are urging the Supreme Court to deny special counsel Jack Smith's request to consider Trump's claims of presidential immunity from criminal prosecution. The court is currently considering a request from Smith to bypass the D.C. Circuit Court and decide whether Trump is fully shielded from criminal prosecution surrounding his conduct on January 6th and beyond. Here to discuss the legal ramifications and what happens next for the Trump team is lawyer and legal expert Professor Alan Dershowitz. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Professor Dershowitz, I want to take on uh, some of the bigger legal questions with respect to the Colorado case first. Uh, as we mentioned in the read, and I think as Tucker Carlson just alluded to, one of the components um, that are, uh, of this lawsuit that are being questioned is whether or not it applies to the president of the United States, the section of the 14th Amendment. M many legal uh, common, uh, commentators that I've listened to say that that is the weakest part of Trump's objection. What do you make of that? Well, it's, it's a technical objection because the term that's used in the 14th Amendment is support. And that's not in the presidential oath. Presidential oath says preserve, protect, and defend. It's a highly technical argument. The much, much stronger argument is Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which is as clear as could be. It says the Congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article. In other words, it's Congress, not the states. And that makes so much sense. When you think of how the 14th Amendment was passed, it was passed by radical Republican Lincoln uh, 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 Reconstructionists. And the last thing they would want is to let states make that decision, because the states include Mississippi, Alabama, uh, you know, all the Confederate states. So it would have been lunacy for the framers to allow the states, state courts, like the Colorado Supreme Court, to decide what is an insurrection and whether it applies to the president or not. This is a decision that's allocated by the Constitution solely to Congress, and it's a power grab by the Colorado Supreme Court. Now, I'm shocked that constitutional lawyers like Lawrence Tribe and Jamie Raskin and uh, Judge Michael Lutek never quote this Article 5, Congress shall have the power to enforce it means what it says. It means that the states have no business interfering in a federal election. So I, I want to ask you two questions. Um, one being, I, I'm seeing uh, you brought up the insurrection term. I've seen some uh, people, in, including, I should say, some liberals and some Democrats. It's, it's there. There are people who want Trump not to be president again, who have recognized some weaknesses in this ruling. Um, the term insurrection, which is used in Section Three, whether that, e even if one thinks Trump has committed some crime or had tried to remain in office beyond legal means, whether that's the same thing as the kind of violently overthrowing or occupying or forming a breakaway state the way the Confederates did, the term insurrection implies. Um, and I will, I'll let you address that first, and then I've got another question. Of course, insurrection doesn't apply to demonstrations or other kinds of even riots that have gone bad. <clears throat> An insurrection is a particular and precise Meaning, you know, we've had insurrections in this country uh, early in our history. Um, we've had some insurrections uh, before the Civil War, but they were attempts to take over the government. Aaron Burr uh, put up an army to try to uh, uh, from from Louisiana. That may have been an insurrection, but this is no more of an insurrection than Black Lives Matter or what's going on in New York now, where these Hitler Youth 
are marching and calling for the overthrow of the United States government because they support Israel. Um, one man's insurrection is another man's protest. And the big issue is who gets to decide what an insurrection is. And the 14th Amendment is clear. The courts don't. Certainly not the state courts. Certainly not the Colorado court. It's up to Congress to define what an insurrection is. And it hasn't done it. It hasn't gone a step further and said, well, an insurrection requires these elements. But they haven't done it. And so it, it can't be enforced. You can't uh, remove somebody from the ballot. If Trump were just one quick thing, if Trump were convicted of one, in one of the four, you know four indictment prosecutions he's facing, um, I've seen some commentator, commentators say they think that would make the legal argument for what Colorado has done stronger. Um, do you agree with that? I do not agree with that. I think the issue is one of jurisdiction, um, and uh, of course he could be convicted of insurrection if he's indicted. In the District of Columbia, they'll indict and convict a ham sandwich if his name Trump is on it. You know, 95% of the voters of the D.C. Um, hate Donald Trump. And so it would be very easy to get a conviction. So I think it's a big mistake for Trump supporters to focus on the lack of a conviction. By the way, I am not a Trump supporter. I want to see Trump defeated fairly. I want to see him on the ballot. I want to have the right to vote against him. And people should have the right to vote for him. But I don't want an unfair election, even though I would welcome a result of Trump being beaten. I don't want him to be beaten unfairly. Addressing the comparison between the January 6th uh, insurrection and the protests that have happened around the country, whether during Black Lives Matter or currently at the Capitol, where uh, Jewish Voices for Peace and another a number of other groups, largely led um, by uh, Jewish Americans who are protesting the 20,000 Palestinians that have been killed in the last two months and are calling for a ceasefire. You know, the, the question is not whether or not the actual events at the Capitol on January 6th are the insurrection. The question is whether or not the weeks-long um, alleged fraud attempt to submit a fake state of electors that these Republicans that were involved in the scheme knew were fake and not, did not reflect the electoral will of the people in seven states across the country, hopeful that there was enough ambiguity for Mike Pence to be able to say, let's throw this to the House, which would then vote, because of the numbers of um, the representatives in the House, would end up being able to throw the, the election to Donald Trump, despite what the uh, Yep. will of the people in those states were. That is a different scheme, right? And do you think that focusing on that right. scheme, as opposed to just the riot on January 6th, is credibly a, a, an insurrection or the same kind of desire to undemocratically throw over, overturn the government that you describe in the Civil War context or in some of those other historical contexts you alluded to? Absolutely not. Um, an insurrection requires violence. By the way, I want to comment a little bit on Jewish Voice for Peace and Jews. Jewish Voice for Peace is not a Jewish organization. It's a fraud. They're mostly non-Jews. They're radical revolutionaries. And they use the word Jewish, but they're not Jewish. And the same thing is maybe 1% of Jews uh, support Hamas, but they're vocal and they use the word Jew when they go and they protest. But don't be fooled. A Jewish Voice for Peace is not Jewish. It has no voice, and it doesn't favor peace. But well, I think an insurrection requires violence. What you're describing is a legal tactic. Maybe it's illegal, and maybe the lawyers should be punished for it. But it's not an insurrection. An insurrection does not involve making uh, legal arguments, even if they're frivolous legal arguments. 
So for one, I have interviewed leadership at Jewish Voice for Peace, both Jewish. Um, one woman's father uh, is a, a, a religious figure, a rabbi, I believe. Uh, I have spoken to many members of Jewish Voice for Peace who are themselves Jewish. And I would agree with you that most Jewish people, of course, don't support Hamas, but neither does Jewish Voice for Peace, which is very specifically advancing a demand for a ceasefire after 20,000, no, no, again, civilians no, have been killed in, in Gaza. Jewish Go ahead. Peace. Jewish Voice for Peace started to condemn Israel and blame Israel for the rapes and murders before Israel fired a single shot on October 8th. It's in my book. I wrote a book called War Against the Jews. I document Jewish Voice for Peace. It started blaming Israel for the rapes, the murders, and the beheadings on October 8th. The ceasefire is just something that they've come to lately in order to increase their power. They are pro-Hamas. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Ask the Anti-Defamation League. It's an anti-Semitic organization with the name Jewish. And when they interview you, they send their four or five front people who are Jews to persuade you that it's a Jewish organization. But it's not. It's a fraudulent organization. Well, let me ask you about this. There has been an, not an attempt, but a, a successful effort to, at a congressional level, conflate anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism the way that it seems like you're doing now, since Jewish Voice for Peace, very specifically, when you talk about condemnations of Israel, more specifically what they did uh, following the horrific attacks on October 7th, was to point out that there's been an ongoing occupation of Gaza, that the people who live in Gaza are largely those who were forced out of their homes during the 1948 Nakba, or the descendants of those people, and that to have real peace in the region, you have to have self-determination for that group of people who cannot continue to live in conditions that humanitarian groups have described as an open-air prison. Is that Are you saying that you think it's appropriate to conflate that kind of a criticism with anti-Semitism itself in the way that Congress has done, which many people on the right and the left have criticized as a, an abridgment of the free speech rights of Americans to associate freely and to criticize you're, a foreign government. You're, you're, you're testifying now, so please let me speak and make my point. Absolutely. Uh, I don't Zionism with anti-Zionism. I do equate support for Hamas with anti-Semitism. Jewish Voice for Peace supports Hamas. They praise Hamas. They think the rapes and the murders were good. They... And, and the National Lawyers Guild praised Hamas, and 33 Jewish groups at Harvard. I'm sorry, uh, uh, groups at Harvard praised Hamas. Praising Hamas is, is anti-Semitic. Uh, can, can you provide a citation, uh, Professor Dershowitz, for for that proposition that Jewish Voice for Peace praised Hamas? You're dominating this conversation. You're going to let me finish. I am in favor of a two-state solution. I have been critical of Israel. I am a Zionist. I don't believe that. Uh, uh, anti-Zionism is necessarily equatable to anti-Semitism, but it often is when you combine it with pro-Hamas sentiments and support for butchery and murder, yes, then it becomes anti-Semitism. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I would like to ask well, you if you did. have a... I apologize for that, Professor Dershowitz, so perhaps you could provide a citation for the proposition that Jewish Voice for Peace praised Hamas in your words. That's a very specific allegation for a Jewish group that I am very familiar with, have interviewed with at length, and have never seen we, any evidence of the like. book is in my book, and the, the quotations and the, the, the statements that were made and the signs that were held up at Jewish, Voice, Jewish for Peace demonstrations have praised Hamas, have supported Hamas, and they're fooling you. 
They're sending you the six Jews in the organization to fool you. They're not sending you the hundreds of radical socialist non-Jews who formed this revolutionary group that really, in the end, wants to overthrow the government of the United States. And they were very clever. They used Jewish Voice for Peace to pretend that Jews somehow support Hamas, and they and they don't. So, Professor, Professor Dershowitz, are, is your contention that you have a book and a citation in front of you, but you're unable to give an example of Jewish Voice for Peace actually condemning Hamas? I, no, I've seen it. I've, condemning Hamas? No, they never condemned Hamas. I'm sorry, praising uh, I, Hamas, defending Hamas, praising Hamas in right, their words? With my own eyes, I've seen signs that Jewish Voice for Peace demonstrations Palestine will be free from the river to the sea. I see. Clean, clean Palestine of dirty Jews. Yes, they support Hamas. And, oh, and oh, okay. You, so do you, you have evidence? You've seen a sign of a Jewish Voice for Peace member holding a sign that says, clean Palestine of dirty Jews. That's a pretty remarkable clean. sign. Yeah, that I yeah. feel like would have gone quite viral if someone had some evidence of that. They clean. Clean is a Nazi term that was used in the 1930s and 40s to refer to dirty Jews. Palestine will be free from the river to Wait, the so, sea. so you're saying you did not see a sign that said clean Palestine of dirty Jews. You're, you're saying that you saw a sign with the word clean and you're reading into that? Of course I'm reading into it, wouldn't you? I see, I see. Yeah, Earlier, you, go ahead, I'm sorry. Somebody uh, talked about uh, get rid of the unclean African-Americans. Wouldn't you read something into that? Of course you would well, read something into that. Well, if a sign that. said, get rid of the unclean African-Americans, I absolutely would. But you just said that you did not see a sign that said, uh, clean Palestine of the dirty Jews. You're editorializing from a sign that I don't uh, know what it said, but use the word clean. The word dirty Jews. I said, I saw signs that said, clean Palestine or clean the world. They're all over the place. You see them in almost every demonstration in Europe and in New York and all over the country. And Palestine will be free from the river to the sea has been deemed to be calling for the end of Israel, calling for the Hamas charter to be satisfied. No two-state solution. Have you seen, I have a question for you. Have you seen a single sign, a single sign at any demonstration calling for a single state solution? I will give you $100 for your favorite charity if you can find me a single sign at any demonstration that supports a two-state solution, which I support. Oh, well, that's interesting. Let's talk about a two-state solution. I wanted to come back to that, actually. Let's talk wait, about it briefly. Wait, but. Ben, um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been very publicly speaking, especially to his own you know, constituents in Israel, about how they should continue to support him because he will guarantee that there won't be no two-state solution. Of course, he's been saying this for a number of years long before October 7th. That's obviously widely out of step with what you and what President Biden are saying are their long-term policy goals. What do you make of that? that yeah. I'm Let sorry? me answer, please. Let me answer. Israel offered the two-state solution in 47, 48, 67, 94, 2000, 2001, 2005, 2007. Israel has repeatedly offered a two-state solution. The Palestinians have said no. I sat down with Abbas in Ramallah, and I said to him, if you say that you would recognize Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, I will make a phone call right now to my friend Benjamin Netanyahu, and I will get him to agree to a two-state solution. But they have to go first, and they have to say that they recognize the right of Israel to exist as the nation state of the Jewish people. The Palestinians don't want it. They could have had a state repeatedly. They are the worst candidate for support. The Kurds couldn't have had a state. 
The Uyghurs couldn't have ever had a state. The only reason Palestine gets so much support is because they're alleged oppressors of Jews. It is anti-Semitic to the core. The Palestinians are lucky that they are allegedly oppressed by Jews. If they were oppressed by the Syrians, like the Kurds are, or the Iraqis, or the Chinese, like the Uyghurs are, they would get no support at all. You cannot understand the support allegedly for Palestine, although it doesn't support a two-state solution, unless you look deeply into the anti-Semitism that lies behind much of that support. Not there's all of it, but there's much There's a of lot it. to get into there, and we obviously don't have time to get into it all here. I, I would note that the right of return was a crucial aspect of what Palestinians wanted that was never offered to them, and al along with um, the... I, I'm sorry? Wait, but wait a minute. You, you, you accuse me, sir. You, you accuse me of filibustering. Well, Israel has given a right to return to people from the Jewish diaspora who have no personal ties to Israel at all. But many Professor Dershowitz, right, let's see if you get a final word in on this. Professor, subject Professor, I, I haven't even asked my question. I just I wanted to ask it to wrap it up. You don't ask questions. You express points of view. You should be a guest, not a host. Well, that, that's fine. Well, that's why I'm going to ask you this following question. Um, Norm Finkelstein, has, uh, who is an expert on this, on this issue, has offered to debate you. If, if I could just ask this, Professor Dershowitz. His heart, every part of his heart, to see these murders raped. How dare you cite Norman Finkelstein? He's a bigot, an anti-Semite, and a supporter of Hamas. Isn't All he? Right. Uh, well, no, I, I actually think that he's a, a renowned scholar whose parents uh, survived the Warsaw Ghetto and is the foremost authority on what's going on in Gaza. But I wanted to put to you, would you be willing to have a longer form conversation with Norm Finkelstein either here or in another format of a show to unpack some of these debates? I already have done that. I did it on the Pierce Morgan show, and um, uh, he just monopolized the, t the whole conversation. He went 14 minutes, and I was given only eight minutes. Well, I, think I would only I, do it at, yeah. at a talk and the exact amount of time accorded to everyone. Then I might do it. But I'm not going to do it with he yeah. getting 14 minutes. I agree. I agree that Professor Finkelstein can be a little long-winded. I would be happy to host an unbounded, time-bounded conversation of that type with the two of you if you were willing. Let me be very clear. You are not a moderator. I will do it with you as an opponent. I will have a debate with you moderated by the gentleman on the other side. But you're not a moderator. You're I'd be an advocate. I'd be happy to do that as well, uh, prof uh, um, Professor. You consent, you consent, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, I'm sure we can find someone that's, that's, that satisfies you. All right, we, we will actually work towards setting up a, a fully functioning uh, debate on this subject between the two of you where there's enough time for both to respond and we, we get that actually sounds like a really good idea. I was joking when I said I don't consent to do it. I would happily do it. Um, I, I want to get in one more question on the subject at hand and then we do have to let you let you go. Can you just predict for us whether you think the Supreme Court will take up the Colorado case, how likely it is that we'd hear from them if they're going to do that? Yes, I think they will give a stay in early January set oral argument probably for February and have a decision likely in March. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Dershowitz, for joining us. Uh, we will be in contact with you again to hope to have a longer discussion on the Israel-Palestine issue. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you.
embattled Harvard President Claudine Gay will possibly be making a return visit to Capitol Hill amid ongoing allegations of academic malfeasance and plagiarism. The Hill reports that the House Education Committee plans to expand its investigation into Gay to include allegations that she committed plagiarism in academic works. Now, this follows the committee's infamous hearing on campus anti-Semitism featuring Gay and also the leaders of the University of Pennsylvania and MIT. Now, the announcement comes as Gay's troubles have seemingly reached outside the halls of Congress and the Internet to hit the mainstream media. Jake Tapper featured Gay as the lead story on his evening CNN show. Here's a quick peek at that. Harvard's top governing body said a review revealed, quote, inadequate citations by Dr. Gay in a few instances, but, quote, no violation of Harvard's standards for research misconduct, unquote. Now, Harvard's guide on sourcing says this on plagiarism, quote, in academic writing, it is considered plagiarism to draw any idea or any language from someone else without adequately crediting that source in your paper, unquote. Now, critics of Dr. Gay and Harvard's review of the allegations say that there is a double standard going on here. Yesterday, Harvard announced it had found two more instances of insufficient citation in Gay's work. The problematic language came from Gay's 1997 doctoral dissertation, in which Harvard said it found two examples of duplicative language without appropriate attribution. Harvard has said it still has no plans to remove Gay from her position. Hmm. Yeah, so this is really heating up. Um, obviously, now there's been reporting in CNN that uh, there is uh, the, the additional plagiarism and that this has not been adequately handled. So I don't know why Congress really needs to hold an investigation, but you know, I think Harvard I, I should that, do that more. That sort of thing didn't matter, Ravi. I thought the pretext of this and the rationale for this and the witch hunt of it all, the background of the story obviously being that there have been student protests on colleges across the campus because the majority of young people are hotly objecting to the now murder of 20,000 um, innocent people in Palestine over the last two uh, months, the majority of whom are women and children. That has been characterized as anti-Semitic protest and any um, effort to protect the speech of those protesters by university presidents has been uh, condemned and attacked by people like Christopher Rufo, who are mounting these kinds of pretextual campaigns to try to oust the deans of the colleges that would not censor the free speech of pro-Palestinian protesters. So now we're going to have a congressional investigation into the academic history of um, private school presidents. It seems to me at a certain point, Robbie, we have to acknowledge that this is increasingly not making any sense and is a waste of tax dollars. There was a recent story that showed that this has been the least productive Congress in decades and that some weird, like a quarter of all the laws passed, there were only like 25 laws or something, involve uh, these kind of um, statements that uh, from River to the Sea is anti-Semitism, uh, the censoring Rashida Tlaib, conflating anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism, those kinds of things. That's what Congress is up to. And now it seems their next crusade is going to be to try to pressure uh, a Harvard pres a dean out of her position because of plagiarism in her essays. Okay, well, from maybe we could stop directing any public funds to Harvard, and then they can do whatever they want, and they can keep uh, Claudine Gay in her position, even though she has clearly um, engaged in practices that violate Harvard's policies. Um, this is now—we've now cited multiple ethicists and experts by The New York Times, by CNN, um, in addition to the ones cited by the conservative news outlets who have brought this to attention, um, many of them concluding that—I mean, virtually all of them concluding that this is a form of 
plagiarism that needs to be dealt with. That's despite the Harvard Corporation's entirely rushed investigation of this. The experts told CNN and the New York Times these kinds of investigations should take weeks and months. Um, it happened uh, immediately. It was not done by the actual ethicists of the department under which Gay's work should have fallen, but by Harvard Corporation itself, um, rubber stamping this. I, I know you want this to be about the free speech issues and all of that, but it, none of that gets around the fact that these no, are actual academic I, violations I that should be handled by, me, the, by Harvard. I think they should absolutely go through every single professor at Harvard University and do an investigation. In fact— well, We're starting at the top. We're starting with the with the head the head honcho. Well, I don't think you have to start anywhere. I think you do it a, full, a wholesome, well, a wholesome uh, investigation. Investigation, and I think that you should actually probably start in um, sequential order of who actually has been targeted, who has who's been flagged for these kind of violations. So you can go back again um, to someone like Alan Dershowitz. Similarly, there was an investigation by then interim president, I think uh, Derek Bach and Charles Ogletree, the details of which were never made public. Um, let's have a conversation about that. Uh, he was. It was also corroborated that he had plagiarized by a number of other esteemed professors from around the country. Michael Desch, political science professor, University of Notre Dame, observed that not only did Dershowitz improperly present someone else's ideas, he may not have even bothered to have read not, the original sources. He copied and pasted in a way that preserved errors in the original citation. Why does this matter at all? A, a, a good question. That I right. That is my question. None of this matters. Because all of this is, this is a dog and pony show to keep us from paying, not paying attention to the fact that the IDF in the last two days has been accused this of This has summary, nothing to do with that. Summary. We are talking about the head of the most elite institution, educational institution in the country, whose work is full of, of what, what we're now calling dupl duplicative language, which is obviously plagiarism, and people like you and people like Charles Fry, a professor at Harvard Law School, in, quoted Great. in the New York Times as saying, well, it's a part of an extreme right-wing attack on elite institutions. It is. The obvious point is to make it look as if there's a double standard. If it came from some other quarter, I might be granting it some credence, but not from these people. Of course. So this has to be—so, okay, if a liberal brought forth these exact— these exact same accusations, no, then we could pay the attention to them? That's ridiculous. If the accusations were raised outside of the context of them just having a, a, a hearing to interrogate them on the free speech policies of the universities. If, if like, Christopher Rufo is literally tweeting, this is the plan, oh, congratulations, we got, the, we got the mainstream press to take this seriously. This is step one in getting her ousted. Because I care about all the Israel stuff. So, of course, I don't care, Robbie. Why do you care? Why do you care what a private because institution— Because I care about the academic standards at Harvard. Why? And if we're just go and we're going Wait to minute, let her get Wait away minute, with Robbie. it because she is on the right side no. of your dispute is utterly unprincipled. Well, why do we let Dershowitz get away with it? I don't know the the, the merit. I don't know that he should get away with it. I don't know the merits of the case. Okay, so well, there's no investigation. I mean, he's not the Nobody president cares. of Harvard. Well, no. And there was no. There wasn't. My understanding is there was an investigation in the Dershowitz case, and they and never he was released. Cleared. They never really. Yeah, exactly. Just like Roxane Gay was cleared, and they they're not going to fire her. So why is this still an ongoing? She conversation? was cleared by Harvard Corporation, not by the department that should have investigated this. And it took a matter of weeks when it should have taken longer. And and all of all these right. ethics so ethicist people are saying. Let's unpack. 
how thorough the investigation was of uh, Alan Dershowitz, how long it took, and let's go through the records of every do other. Do it. Do a let's segment go. on it. Do a radar but, on it. I don't care. What, it has nothing to do with if he's guilty, he should be held to the same standard. It doesn't matter. Right. We're talking about the president of Harvard, and people are covering okay. it up and ignoring Look. it okay, because Robbie. he's on the right Look. side of this dispute, and it's Le utterly unprincipled. Libertarian principles are that we have to go in with the government resources and oust the, the president of a private college. Who's Ro the we? Robbie, that's what you're saying right now. This is your crusade. I, I don't I don't care, and I, I'm sorry, no one can make me care. Of the two of us, okay. I went to Harvard twice. That's fair. I'm the one. I'm a let me finish this point. Let me, let me finish this point, Robbie. It, it strikes me as very curious that you seem to be so much more deeply invested in the reputational integrity of Harvard University, an institution which I regularly trash and condemn, mind you, and don't think should exist. But you seem to be so deeply invested in the academic integrity of Harvard uh, University that you're willing to throw your libertarian ideals of private institutions whoa, being able whoa, whoa. to conduct, conduct themselves the way they want without government interference to champion no, a pogrom no, against Claudine Gay. They can conduct themselves in any way they, they see fit, just as soon as, and ideally, this will happen when they are totally cut off from the public dole, okay, then which I advocate make, make right Make an now. argument that you think that every university that does something bad should be, in your personal every perspective, Every university should be should, off the public dole anyway. Have a public I want to bring up uh, a similar story that has gotten absolutely no outrage, uh, unsurprisingly, from this quarter that's very concerned about the conduct of university presidents. Um, Michelle Bachman, who I didn't realize this, apparently she is dean at uh, the Robertson School of Government, recently uh, made an appearance on the Charlie Kirk show, where she not didn't say she was protecting the perhaps spicy speech of people at the university, but made some spicy comments of their own. Can we play that clip? Because they have one industry in Gaza, and that's terrorism. So it's time that Gaza ends. The two million people who live there, they are clever assassins. They need to be removed from that land. That land needs to be turned into a national park. I don't know what she said. All right, though. so she said it's time that Gaza ends. The two million people who live there, they are clever assassins. They, the two million people that live there, need to be removed from that land. That land needs to be turned into a national park. Now, that's a clear endorsement of ethnic cleansing of the two million people that live in Gaza. It is not coming from students. There's not an allegation that something untoward was on a sign somewhere that nobody took a picture of. This is straight from the horse's mouth and captured on camera. Now, I don't know how much uh, public funding the uh, Regent University gets, but do you also agree that Regent University should be condemned and that Mel Michelle Bachman needs to be investigated for publicly advocating for uh, ethnic cleansing as the dean of a university? No, I think if she committed plagiarism, they should probably do something about it. And I think her university, no more so than Harvard, is deserving of public subsidy. How about that? Okay. Okay. More rising right after this. A new bipartisan congressional resolution calls on United States officials to drop charges against WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Republican Representative Paul Gosar introduced a resolution stating that, quote, regular journalistic activities are protected by the First Amendment and that the United States government should end the prosecution of Assange, who's accused of publishing classified military documents. 
And in, in other Assange news, his final appeal will be held in the United Kingdom High Court February 20th and 21st of next year. The public two-day hearing could be the final opportunity for Assange to prevent his extradition to the United States, where he faces an 175-year sentence. Joining us now to weigh in is Julian Assange's lead lawyer on the CIA case, Richard Roth. You recently had a little bit of a positive news development. Can you tell us about that first? Yeah, very good news. Uh, we we represent the uh, individuals, the U.S. citizens that visited the Ecuadorian embassy in London um, during the time period that he was there. And what we learned through a litigation that was happening in Spain was that the CIA uh, wrongfully uh, actually spied on the individuals that visited him by uh, imaging their cameras, their phones, their laptops, their Apple, their Apple equipment um, without telling them, and then it went back to the CIA. So we sued the CIA and Mike Pompeo in federal court in New York, southern, the Southern District, uh, alleging essentially under the Fourth Amendment, it's a wrongful search and seizure without a, fourth, without a um, search warrant. The federal government made a motion to dismiss, claiming that the, they can't be sued because they, they are the CIA. And last, just this week, um, actually last week on Friday, I believe it was, the federal court came down with a decision, uh, Judge Cattell, stating, no, CIA, you're wrong. Uh, you can be sued. If your uh, spying was illegal, then there's repercussions. So the court just denied the CIA. The simple answer is the court just denied the CIA's motion to dismiss. It granted it on behalf of Pompeo. But we are now continuing our lawsuit against the CIA for wrongfully engaging the conduct in which it engaged. And just to get technical for one minute here, is this was this like a qualified immunity issue? Is it that you are suing specific agents or you're you're suing the agency? Because I don't even understand the argument for why that wouldn't be. There's no there's nowhere in the Constitution does it say, well, if you're the CIA, you don't you don't have to grant uh, due process or get warrants for things. Yeah, well, there are several arguments. I, they hit, hit us as expected with a barrage of arguments, one of which was immunity, one of which was a reasonable expectation of privacy, stating that we, uh, the, the people that went in, our clients, uh, did not have an expectation of privacy. They thought that the CIA could rummage through their, their information, which was somewhat nonsensical. So there were a lot of arguments they made, standing arguments they made, and the court essentially, knocking one bowling pin down at a time, rejected every one of those arguments stating, no, CIA, if you wrongfully went into their computers and imaged them, you can't do that. And what's even worse is that some of the people that visited uh, Julian Assange during that time period, our clients, are lawyers. So think about it. Lawyers walk in with a laptop. They give it to a company. The company then gives images it and sends it to the CIA. What's in that laptop is not only confidential information between the lawyers and, and Julian Assange, but there's confidential information between those lawyers and other clients. Uh, the same is true with doctors. When doctors go to visit Julian Assange, the doctor-patient privilege is, is blown up when, in fact, the CIA has all of the medical information and doctor's notes and prescriptions and, and, and diagnoses of, of, of Julian Assange that they're not entitled to. So mm. it's a very, very um, we, outrageous conduct by the CIA, which we're going to hold them accountable for. It's a, it's really an incredible story, uh, and the implications of them being two of the, the parties involved being lawyers, as you pointed out, is really extraordinary. I do wonder uh, if we see any relationship between this lawsuit and the broader goal of freeing Julian Assange. Is this the kind of pressure campaign that you help, hope might have some influence here as we are looking to this February date, uh, potential extradition uh, 
deciding date uh, next year. And also, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to what the legal argument, what legal arguments are left in this last ditch effort to stop extradition. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, I'll uh, top on question, but I'll answer it all. Um, first of all, um, it, the primary purpose of this case is to essentially agree, is, is to compensate the victims, the people that visited him for the wrongful conduct of the CIA. That being said, you're right, there is a byproduct in this case. We are bringing attention to what we call the outrageousness of what the federal government is doing to Julian Assange. He was and has always been a reporter. And for no reason, they decided to essentially indict him. Uh, we know that Mike Pompeo, in his very first speech when he became the director of the CIA, deemed Julian Assange a hostile non-state uh, terrorist organization for some crazy reason. And we do think, just like the press thinks, just like the congressmen think, just like the senators think, that you cannot, you cannot put a, an investigative reporter in jail for performing his investigative reporting. It, go, it, it, so, it so goes against every concept we know of the First Amendment and of people like you who are reporters who shouldn't be, shouldn't be in fear of what they report. So yes, that is a byproduct of that. As far as the extradition and what goes, what's going on in February, I am not on top of that. That's really the British lawyers. Uh, I know it's a last fight. Um, I know that uh, he has lost before, and I can't give you any comments on what's happening in February 2021. But as far as we're concerned, uh, the CIA was wrong in um, essentially stealing this information from the individuals and uh, bringing attention to what's happening to Julian Assange is actually a necessary and important byproduct of the litigation. Well, and it shows the hypocrisy of the government's position that they're, you know, accusing Assange of lawbreaking, which obviously I agree with you, the First Amendment should protect journalistic activities, including and especially what Julian Assange did. But even under some warped understanding of that as lawbreaking, well, the, the CIA, our own government, is now is being shown, allegedly, to have violated the law at every turn in order to entrap him. Yeah, it, 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 there's there's a certain um, irony to it. Uh, they are claiming that he wrongfully obtained information. That's the reason they're <laughs> saying that they want to they want to they want to try Julian Assange for wrongfully obtaining information. Yet the federal government is wrongfully obtaining information against him. So you know, it, 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 there is an irony and there is an outrage and there are a lot of there are a lot of organizations that's now finally coming to the surface because if and when he is extradited, and he probably will be. Uh, the big issue will be is should this man be tried for publishing information he obtained? I mean, it's no different than what you guys do, what the New York Times does, what Fox does, what CNN does. If you get information from the government, as long as you are not involved in this taking of it, you have an obligation to let that out. So there is a hypocrisy here, and, and, and it is, it, it, it's just so, it's so apparent uh, that we're hoping that one day the Biden administration may very well um, pardon Assange if, in fact, it gets that far. How hopeful are you about that? It's become a little bit of a, uh, an issue in the primaries that candidates are using to distinguish themselves from Biden and his un unwillingness to do so. Yeah, I don't know if anyone—we're not hopeful until after the election results, if, in fact, Biden loses— then, and there's been pressure put on Biden, maybe before he leaves, he will pardon him. If he wins and he knows he's 
the next president for four years, he may also pardon him. So I don't think anything's going to happen until after the election. But but this is becoming in the now that once Assange is brought to the U.S., we expect him to be brought to the U.S. We'd like to win in in, in London. I don't think we will. But once he comes, then it'll become front and center. Do you try a person who is a essentially publishes material, um, which is vital to the, the the country and the individuals, the citizens knowing? So I think it's going to come out um, much more if, in fact, he's in the U.S. I don't think any pardon will happen in direct answer to your question until he actually um, until the next election. I just think it's a, it's a very volatile issue both ways. Mm. Yeah, and of course, you know, some conservatives, certainly not all, but some conservative voices have spoken up for pardoning Julian Assange um, a as well. So it'll be interesting, you know, if we get a re next Republican administration, if there's any, um, you know, pressure that way. I know, for instance, Tucker Carlson actually visited um, Assange a couple of weeks ago, I believe. So, you know, we hope there's attention on this from both left and, uh, and right. Um, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this case. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. America a representative democracy? Well, not so sure. Earlier this week, the Colorado Supreme Court barred former President Donald Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. The court found that Trump engaged in an insurrection on January 6 and is not eligible to run for president of the United States. Public reporters Ed Jelani and Alex Gutentag make the case that even while you might not agree with things Trump has said in the past and may even admit that he has adopted extreme and inflammatory rhetoric, in a democratic society, voters still have the right to see Trump's name on the ballot and even vote for him if they want to. In their latest reporting, Jelani and Gutentag detail the Transition Integrity Project, an alleged plan on the Democratic front to, quote, undermine the 2020 election. Joining us now to discuss all of this is reporter at Public Zed Jelani. Welcome back, Zed. Long time no see. Yeah, I know. It's great to be here. <laughs> Zed, so help us understand what this Democratic-led effort to undermine the 2020 election is all about. Yeah, so the Transition Integrity Project was basically a group of, uh, I guess, Democratic Party affiliated or, or loosely tied to Democratic Party uh, officials, academics, think tankers, and, and folks who, who generally supported getting Trump out of office. Basically, what they did is they got together and they sort of war game different scenarios uh, for what could happen with the election. And and some of those scenarios uh, were somewhat close to what actually did happen, which is that Trump lost the election, refused to admit it. But other ones would uh, include something like a narrow Trump victory uh, or or something closer or, or to a narrower victory for Biden. And in some of those scenarios, they actually anticipated Democrats doing things like maybe uh, having mass protests, uh, e even sending competing slates of electors. And it wasn't necessarily that they were advocating for these things, but it showed that they did anticipate this as a possibility from the Democratic Party, because I think there was so much intense anger uh, against Trump and also just polarization. And I think, you know, part of this speaks to this larger desire from the Democrats, I think, uh, since Trump was elected in 2016, to just kind of get rid of him by any means necessary. Uh, in, in some cases, that meant impeachments. In other cases, that meant even a month into his term, you know, uh, Congressman John Lewis, uh, who, of course, did so much to establish a real, uh, a truer democracy in the United States was calling Trump illegitimate. I think that was in January 2017, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, I think all of this kind of feeds into uh, these court cases, which are largely being drawn by, uh, being brought to court with the assistance of Democratic Party-aligned groups, like like Crew in this case in Colorado and uh, similar groups in other states. 
to kind of disqualify Donald Trump from office. And look, it's, it's entirely understandable that Democrats oppose Donald Trump. They oppose him on almost all his policies. They hate his rhetoric. They find his personal behavior uh, to be irredeemable, and, and they find him to be disruptive to American democracy. But the question is, um, shouldn't isn't it healthiest to kind of hash that out in the Democratic square and defeat him at the battle box, uh, at the ballot box, uh, instead of trying to go through these sort of legal routes or criminal routes? Uh, now, of course, that doesn't mean that anyone is above the law, right? If Trump was actually convicted of insurrection, I think there would be no question in anyone's mind that he wouldn't be eligible for the presidency. Um, but even Jack Smith, uh, who's been leading the, the federal side of this, uh, didn't convict uh, Trump for insurrection. He chose not to do that. And there are still a number of court cases Trump is involved in at both the federal and state level, and we'll see how those play out. Um, but I do think it, it can be potentially dangerous territory for us to, to be looking at a candidate who in some polls is actually leading Biden and, and almost all polls is leading the Republican race and just kind of disqualifying him by fiat because generally speaking, I think they don't, they don't like it, right? And they're just testing every legal theory they can to, to do that. What would you say to someone, you know, who looks at the transition project and says, well, okay, some Democratic-aligned people consider doing, um, you know, all of these things to maybe um, object to or reverse or stay in power, you stop Trump from from uh, from staying in power, but uh, but Trump actually did it. Republicans actually tried it. They, you know, they actually went forward with with all those schemes. So how can you say, you know, we are the bigger danger? Well, look, I think that. It's absolutely true that a lot of what Trump did around the election was at the very least inappropriate, right? We, you know, whether it's criminal or not will be decided in a number of court cases, including the one right here where I live in Georgia. Um, but I think that the problem is, is that Trump's inappropriate behavior generally is responded to by all these institutions, right? Like he's going to court in several different uh, jurisdictions and states uh, over these issues. The media generally is stacked against them. I think that there is an accountability measure for Trump in place there. But unfortunately, I think sometimes those accountability tools are not properly deployed against what the Democrats did in a lot of these cases. I mean, for instance, one of the most egregious things was that uh, in the 2020 election, we had social media firms sort of collaborating and uh, colluding to suppress an actual true story that kind of looked bad for uh, President Biden's uh, son, Hunter. Now, uh, maybe the, in this case, the cover-up was worse than the crime, right? I don't know that that story would have been all that damaging uh, for Biden or would have impacted the election. But the fact they went through such lengths, not only by pressuring social media firms, but also by recruiting dozens of folks who were in the intelligence community to come out and say, oh, this was just propaganda. Um, I think that those things are sort, you know, those things do undermine democracy. And I don't think there's been proper accountability for them the same way that I do think that a lot of Trump's misbehavior is accounted for. I do think that there is sort of a mechanism in there to contain him and to, to properly uh, sift through all this. But with the Democrats, unfortunately, often there isn't. And that includes, you know, sort of a wide collusion between different sections of society, ranging from intelligence to social media firms and corporations to folks in government. And and that's that, that's a threat to democracy, I think, that isn't, isn't quite as examined as, as it should be. Is the argument that conservatives don't weaponize the CIA and the FBI to advance their interests when they're in office in the same way that Democrats do? Well, I, I would be careful about saying they don't do it at all. I think that at this moment in history, uh, the various things I just mentioned, ranging from social media firms to the intelligence agencies to a lot of these think tanks and, and academia and media and so on and so forth, happen to be more aligned with the Democrats. But I think part of the reason you should be concerned about this is because there could be a future where these institutions realign on the right 
and that they start using these tools. Or maybe Trump is elected again, and he decides that he wants to kind of uh, weaponize these agencies in the same way they weaponized against him, right? Uh, I think that's part of what people don't understand about it sometimes when they view it purely through partisan lens. And, you know, we can get into the recent arguments about freedom of speech the same way. I think a lot of people on the left kind of poo-pooed it, didn't think, you know, they would ever have a trouble on their side. But now we've seen so many uh, people advocating for Palestinians being censored over the past couple months, um, using many of the same tools and language that, that they themselves are using against the right. So I think, you know, it's it's at this point, the, the sort of the actual institutions that we're fingering or we're pointing the finger at right now are with the Democrats. I mean, Democrats are trying to throw Trump off. In some cases, they're trying to throw him off the ballot. Not all Democrats are doing that, but some are. But in the future, it could, the shoe could be on the other foot. And I think that's part of why you should be concerned about this, no matter what party you, you happen to affiliate with. I will say, Zed, that I think that some of the accusations about hypocrisy, oh, the left didn't realize that it was going to be in this position as it used the tools against Donald Trump that are now being used against itself. It only looks like hypocrisy if you're calling liberal and left the same group. The left has, throughout, been, I think, getting a lot of heat, frankly, from the liberals for being willing to stand up for what have been abuses that have negatively infected Donald Trump, stand up, st standing up against the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story, for instance, it, it, and has been very consistent on issues like Julian Assange, et cetera. And I do think a lot of the confusion and the flip-flopping that can look like flip-flopping from 5,000 feet when you zoom in, what it really is, is that there is a centrist majority, that is some conservatives and some Democrats, that are largely aligned with social media companies and everything else, and that it's a liberal, neoliberal centrist majority that tries to maintain the status quo, and it can be reactive against figures like Donald Trump, and can be reactive against figures on the far left, whether it's a you know Bernie-style person or, in this instance, uh, pro-Palestinian protesters. So then I, I, I do think that's, that is, I think, one of my pushbacks to these kinds of stories, which is, you know, if they are not sufficiently framed as a kind of a top-down narrative as opposed to a, well, the other side is doing it too, it can, these, they, they can very much be weaponized by the very neoliberal partisan flanks to insulate themselves from criticism or to justify their own use of the very tools that we're criticizing right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I take your point. I think it's a fair one. And that and ne neither side, if we look at them broadly, is homogenous. And maybe a better way to think about it is sort of like counterpopulism, right? I think mm -hmm. that you have various elite, elites by their nature are the people who kind of control the institutions, right? And they fear populism from the left and they fear populism from the right. And look, not all their fears are 100% unfounded. I do think, you know, a lot of Trump's behavior around uh, the election in 2020 was egging on things that I ended up being very unfortunate, culminating in the riot on Capitol uh, January 6th. Um, but that doesn't, but there's a certain uh, time when you're kind of burning down the village to save it, right? I think that uh, when taking legitimate fears about what's happening uh, with Donald Trump, or maybe taking legitimate fears about, you know, certain speech being too uh, just inappropriate with regards to the Middle East or whatever, and then responding to it in a way that just tries to suppress people and their legitimate desires, I think this isn't kind of the way um, to manage these conflicts, right? I mean, if you're if you're someone I, if you're someone living in Colorado right now who voted for Donald Trump in 2020, and I think somewhat over a million people voted for him in 2020, how do you feel right now? Do you feel like you're more included in the democracy? Do you feel like you're more open to working with Democrats and like solving problems and things? No, you feel like there actually is a deep state conspiracy out to get you, and you know you you're going to go in a more conspiratorial direction. And I think. Speaking to your point, Brianna, I think sometimes people in the, the kind of the elite power centers who often do kind of identify as centrist or neoliberal or neoconservative or so on and so forth, 
they think that they can handle what they view from their point of view as extremists, as people who are radicals way out in the wings, by just shutting them up, by saying, you know, they don't, they don't deserve a seat at the table. We can't normalize this, blah, blah, blah. But does that really work? Or does that push them off into camps that maybe become more conspiratorial, more extreme? And because they, then they have a legitimate grievance. Their legitimate grievance is that they're not being allowed to participate uh, in a democracy. And I think a lot of people who supported Bernie in 2016 felt that way by how the Republicans, uh, I'm sorry, by how the Democratic leadership was marginalizing them. And I'm sure a lot of Republicans feel that way right now. Yeah, I, I try to distinguish. Um, I, I agree with you, Brianna, about not you know tagging the left necessarily. I have, now I have a lot of experience dealing with the left. I know, I, and I, I knew from the get-go that the left was very skeptical of the Hunter Biden censorship and a lot that got revealed by the Twitter files. I, I wouldn't necessarily use centrist. I, I would say to describe these people because their their cultural and social views are are very progressive, or at least in a performative way, maybe you know, wokeness, DEI type stuff. So, I, I, but I do I would distinguish progressive from from left. You know, there's been principled people on all sides of the spectrum warning about the threats to our civil liberties and our free speech coming from this blob of whatever we want to, this amalgamation of uh, Yeah, I think, of we, need, I think we just need a new word to describe these people because they're almost outside our current political lexicon, but they're very powerful. So like, yes. I, you know, whoever wants to volunteer one. Sanjilani, mm. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We have some bombshell allegations from the UN. The Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory has reported receiving disturbing accounts alleging that the Israeli army summarily executed at least 11 unarmed Palestinian men in the Ramal neighborhood of Gaza City. The incident, witnessed by family members, has prompted concerns that, quote, raise alarm about the potential commission of a war crime. These accusations come on the heels of earlier assertions that Israeli forces intentionally targeted and killed civilians, according to the statement. In light of these allegations, the U.N. group has called on Israeli authorities to promptly initiate an independent investigation. Meanwhile, according to The Huffington Post, the State Department is working to block another bid for accountability. Officials are preparing to pressure Switzerland to reject global calls for a conference on Geneva Convention's violations in Israel-Palestine. This comes as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the suffering would end today if only Hamas surrendered. Let's watch. Israel has been very clear, uh, including as recently as today, uh, that it would welcome returning to uh, a pause in the further release of hostages. The problem was and ha has been and remains Hamas. Uh, they reneged on commitments that they made during the first uh, pause for, for hostage releases. Um, and the question is whether they are in fact willing to resume this, uh, this effort. Yeah, the, so, of course, this accusation, this more recent accusation about the 11 people summarily executed comes after a week of images where we saw Palestinian men being asked to strip down and get into the back of trucks to kneel in rows um, in imagery that many Jewish observers liken to Im images that we saw from the Holocaust and other pogroms around the world. Uh, so this is a moment that seems to really call for the kind of investigation that several accusations and incidents, instances of um, uh, throughout the two-month period of the siege have, have warranted investigation, but there has been some uh, resistance from Israel and the United States, which offers it some political cover, to actually allow th outside third parties in to do exactly that. We've seen um, a 
real reluctance to allow third-party journalists into Gaza to do reporting. We are now close to 100 uh, local journalists being killed by IDF forces. There has been a notable dip in the amount of information coming out of Gaza as a consequence, uh, as some people are saying, a direct consequence of um, the dip in number of journalists that are even existing on the ground and able to uh, get images out of the territory. And on top of all of that, now we're seeing on a diplomatic level the story about how America is trying to come to some agreement with the U.N. about what accountability could look like in a way that doesn't actually impede Israel's ability to continue its siege. Sure. I mean, I would say that Israeli forces um, obviously can detain um, people they've captured and make determinations about um, whether they are part of Hamas or what is the appropriate way to process those individuals. They cannot obviously summarily execute them on the spot. Um, there should certainly be an accusation. rules of war to uh, strip people naked or otherwise humiliate them for the sake of humiliating them. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. As I said, there should be an investigation into whether this took place and um, if some—if uh, members of the IDF did that, they should be held to the strongest possible accounting, because that is, in fact, a war crime and is totally, totally um, inexcusable and, uh, and should warrant not just condemnation, but something being done about it. So I well, we're hearing, don't disagree. And in that clip from the State Department is, of course, that that is not what's happening at all. The U.S. Is, the US has been maintaining this line that everything that bad that happens in Gaza, every war crime, whether it's Israel dry, dropping white phosphorus, whether it's videos from earlier this week of IDF forces doing controlled explosions of residential buildings that have nothing to do with any of the fighting, uh, whether it is the two uh, Christian Palestinians, the mother and daughter pair who were shot uh, leaving uh, the church that was condemned by the pope earlier this week. None of these instances have changed the response from the U.S. government, which is that as long as Hamas exists and as long as Hamas continues to fight, Israel has carte blanche to do what they will to the entire 2.3 million population of Gaza. Now we're in a situation where one out of every 100 Gazans have been killed. So if, again, you imagine a scenario where you have an area the size of Queens and a population the size of Queens or approximately Brooklyn, where you have, um, you know, uh, the, the majority of the housing, the overall majority of the housing that's been displaced, the over majority, um, overwhelming majority of the population that are now refugees inside the pre-existing refugee camp that was Gaza, you have the collective punishment of obviously having restricted food, water, uh, and medicine. And we've recounted at length the depths of the medical crisis that's going on there. Um, there was a recent story that a baby that had been born since the beginning of the siege was just killed. So there's casualties, people who are casualties who never knew a world where the siege wasn't ongoing. You know, and despite all of that, if, the, if your line is, as long as Hamas exists and keeps fighting, that Israel doesn't have to be responsible for any of its crimes, well, that, provide, that, that creates a pretty obvious incentive there. Well, I don't know that that means Israel should not be responsible for its crimes. It can't, again, the fact that they suffered a terrorist attack are now at war with the government of a neighboring area does not mean that they can or should not mean that they can violate international standards of human rights. And so, no, they can't just they can't just well, shoot people. Stop they them? shouldn't. 
Well, I mean, nobody's going to stop them, but I'm saying it's not. Well, I guess they can violate human rights. Well, what are you, I'm saying in a, on a moral level. I'm saying it's not well, right. I, well, if, no, on a practical <laughs> level, yes. It's, I've said this before. It will absolutely continue until Hamas surrenders. So that makes Blinken's point correct. They have license to do this. They are going to do this. And the swiftest way to bring an end to these atrocities would be the surrender of the, of the opponent government. Well, the difference, Robbie, is that Blinken isn't you or I. Blinken is part of a Biden administration that has the direct ability to stop the fighting or stop the siege because it is the siege is being conducted with American money and American bombs and with American diplomatic cover. It is America's veto in the U.N. that is precluding the kinds of um, investigations and the kind of criminal international criminal penalties that could befall specific bad actors in the Israeli government if we didn't provide that diplomatic immunity. I mean, as it should. We're, it's not our job to be the world policeman. We should not offer. So there is an organization called it. the United give. Nations that was created after World War II, where we have a permanent uh, veto power, and that we are we are a member of that that group. If you think that America shouldn't be involved at all in international diplomacy, then it should give up its veto power and simply leave the United Nations. But as a member of the United I'd Nations, start right there. As a member of the United Nations currently, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot say, well, I don't think the Americans should be the world's policemen, so it's allowed to act as the world's policeman, an unethical, dirty cop wait, who is providing you, diplomatic cover for Israel. Didn't you oppose, don't, as, and I oppose as well, sanctioning uh, Russia for what it's doing in Ukraine? It's, first of all, it's not about opposing. Why are you bringing up sanctions when we're having a conversation about bombs that are being dropped on Gaza with American funding and that are actually American. So I, I oppose the American funding right. of the bombs. That so we, we have no disagreement so here. Question, but you want us to take Anthony extra Blinken, steps to intervene against Israel. And I'm I, saying I, we should just have nothing to do with it. The extra step that I specifically just cited was the United Nations and international criminal courts not being blocked by the United States from having the power to hold the Israeli government and the bad actors in the Israeli government accountable for the war crimes that they are committing. What does that have to do with sanctions? I'm, you want us to intervene to have some investigation of Israel? I'm saying I want, us to I want to stop butt out of the conflict. I want, right. I want to butt I want out of the conflict, the just like I want us to butt out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I want the United States of America to stop intervening and blocking the UN from doing its job. No, you wanted to vote to establish a investigation. And like, I don't care if the Geneva, Actually, if no. they investigate, <laughs> America, as long as they're con investigating atrocities committed on both sides, and we're going to call, we're going to call Israel and Hamas to answer for what they've done. Of course. Fine. But Amer America doesn't have to vote, actually. No one's looking for America's vote, because everyone else in the world is already voting to stop to, for a ceasefire and to end the atrocities. It's like America, Israel, and some South Pacific island that are the only people in the entire world who are not opposed to the end of the war crimes in Gaza and the 20,000 people who have been killed in the last two months, 70 percent of which are women and children. So America, we're not looking for America's vote. We're looking for America to get out of the way and stop providing diplomatic cover for what are, is now a list of war crimes that is so long that it's overwhelming, and it feels almost like a pylon to just articulate the true facts about what's been going on in the Gaza Strip. I mean, it's Strip. war, Brianna. It's war. They're at war with the government of the neighboring population. I, I want it to end right now. I want no one further to be killed in, a in this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis, and it's terrible, and I don't know how it—but <laughs> there's going to be conflict until, until Hamas surrenders. That's our position, that's Israel's position, and that's going to be the reality. So 
So then why would we not so it's, just it's say— So it's very interesting. That's, that's Hamas's position, that it's going to keep bombing Israel until Israel surrenders. Right. So. Given that that's Hamas's position, that's <laughs> no. why Israel's going to do what Hamas— It wasn't always Hamas's position. There was many efforts at peaceful protest. In America, we said it was illegal to boycott Israel. In America, uh, in, in, in the Gaza Strip— Never should have done any of that. Thousands of people were shot— maimed and injured by the IDF as they tried to peacefully do the March of Return in, in 2018 and simply peacefully protest for the end of the occupation in Gaza. They were met with murder and state violence from Israel, for which they were never accountable in the international criminal system. Yeah. And so now, after years and years of a lack of accountability for their war crimes against Palestinians in the West Bank, which we're not really getting into right now, which, of course, has no Hamas, there have also been kidnappings and killings and summary murders of Palestinians that have escalated incredibly in the cover of this conflict. Um, and so this is the situation that Palestinians are in. And it is not a shrug, I wish we could do something about it situation. It is an, our government and our tax dollars are directly paying for this. Meanwhile, Israel just announced that they will be paying for free college education for all of its IDF fighters. Again, receiving more money from the American government than any other country in the world. Now we should cut that off. We do agree on that. More rising right after this. Caramba, tension throughout Argentina as new President Javier Malay puts plans to reduce the size and scope of government into action. Protesters took to the streets to express their displeasure with Malay's movement to remove many of the social services in the country and cut back on government programs. Here's some of that. Malay was swept into office on promises to reduce government bloat and tamp down on Argentina's astronomical 140 percent inflation rate. But some civil rights advocates have expressed concern that Malay is showing authoritarian tendencies amid the protest over his plans. As one user put it, Argentina's President Malay says he could take away welfare from protesters who block streets. Demonstrations are currently mobilizing in response to shock therapy measures from the new government. Street marches are the usual practice for protesters in Argentina. Apparently, no more, unless you want to risk um, the backlash. So the new protocol to maintain public order, um, it allows federal forces to clear people blocking the streets if they do so without a judicial order, and authorizes the police to identify, through video or digital means, people protesting and obstructing the public thoroughfares. The country can then—the government can then bill them for the cost of mobilizing security forces. Apparently, this is, has been done in order to stop a common form of protest in Argentina that are known as piquettes, uh, where they engage in street-blocking uh, techniques. And these uh, civil rights and civil libertarian groups are um, arguing that this protocol goes too far and is effectively criminalizing the right to protest in Argentina. Yeah, I mean, there was a—this was last week or the week before—there was a— um, the edict was on social media, and some American person 
translated translated it and made it look um, very bad and highly authoritarian. And uh, actually, we did some correction to that at Reason. One of my colleagues who speaks the language translated it. And it, you might still object to it, but the characterization was more authoritarian than it actually was, suggesting that all protesters were going to be basically um, stopped. What the order says is that protests that, you know, that, that block the, the actual street to prevent people from getting through or driving through, that is not going to be um, allowed anymore, which I don't find authoritarian. I wouldn't specifically cut social programs to those people. What Malay's agenda—what he is saying he's going to do is cut social programs for, um, for everyone. Um, a lot of, you know, these austerity measures are coming in. They're selling off government-run businesses that have failed. Um, they are going to reduce spending. Um, they're getting rid of a lot of regulations. They're actually going to make foreign trade easier. I mean, this is a libertarian economist's dream scenario to take control of a country and implement um, all of these things. And in the short term, it's going to hurt. But the idea is that this will, in the long run, bring down inflation and improve the economic situation of the country. It's interesting. The idea of making foreign trade easier does sound kind of antithetical to some of the America First policies that are really being embraced here. It also does seem—I'm not sure what the mechanism is to improve trade, but I did see a story about China suspending a $6.5 billion currency swap with Argentina because of these new, po new policies. And there's some question about how it's going to be able to get the currency necessary to pay back its IMF loans. So maybe it is— Everyone's kind of buckled up and ready for it to get worse before it gets better. It's obviously easier for very rich people who are running the government to say, strap in, it'll get worse before it gets better. Um, and that's why you're seeing so many people protesting out in the street. But here's the test case. Let's see um, if it does, in fact, get better. Yeah. The, uh, in the kind of libertarian economic, Austrian economic view, the, the metaphor is you already drank too. It's a, it's a, it's a hangover scenario. You already drank recklessly. The pain is coming. You can delay it but, and put yourself, and then the pain will be even worse when you finally experience it, um, including even fatal. But you have to have the hangover. So we're going to do the hangover now. We're not going to keep drinking. And that will be—that's the—it's the, unavoidable. It has to take place. And let's do that now. That's, the, that's like the libertarian Austrian view of how these things should be dealt with. Um, people in Argentina—I mean, so he also aspires to—and I, I, I know much less about um, uh, monetary theory. Um, he aspires to um, make the, the dollar the standard instead of the, the peso. People have been in Argentina actually, have actually been in black markets using the dollar for some time because the peso is, is being— um, deflated in its value every day. Um, so there's so that might be China's retaliation for being friendlier to the American dollar, I would suspect. What do you make of the policy choice to deny benefits to people who protest and to use uh, the government, uh, that kind of government coercion to dictate people's speech or whether or not they feel uh, empowered to, to protest and to, to engage in their speech rights? Yeah, I would oppose that, obviously. Um, people should have the right to protest, to protest the government's actions. Um, they can't, you know, they can't block the—they should be removed from blocking the street if people can't get by. They shouldn't—so the penalty is not having your benefits cut. Um, that is—that should just be a part of the agenda, which is what it sounds like. Um, like 300 regulations um, eliminated immediately. I support all that. I don't support, you know, jailing peaceful protesters or subjecting them to other ordeals? Um, my understanding is that Melee's argument is that people uh, have the right to protest, but they also have the right to get to work. And when weighing sure. those 
conflicting rights, they have decided that the right to drive to work is more important than your right to free speech. Well, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, I, I feel that way in the American context as well. The people who blocking, who stand in the roads, they have to be right cleared out. You think someone's right to drive to work is a more important right than the first right enshrined in our Constitution? I mean, I, I, you can't. You can't protest in the. I'm fine with the police getting you out of the way if you're what in the middle of the road. I mean, we've covered like ten of these over the years. Right, but that that wasn't my question. Yeah. Of course, if you break the law and engage in civil disobedience, your right is to do that, and you also have will suffer the consequences if you actually sure. break the law. That's sure. what Martin Luther King wrote about from Birmingham jail. It wasn't to be free of the consequences of your actions. The question is whether or not this framing. This is from. Um, the uh, head of the newly created Human Capital Ministry, which combines what used to be the ministries of labor, education, and social development, which no longer exist. Yeah, we don't need um, Sandra uh, Pedavolo, Pedavello says, protesting is a right, but so is the right of people to move freely through Argentine territory to go to their workplace. And when weighing those two rights, there's been a clear decision that's made that says that the right to protest and the right to speech um, is less important than the right to drive to work. All right. I mean, you have the right to protest and, and speak, but you don't have the right to block other people or obstruct. They have the right. To, I mean, the public spaces are a shared space, and, and, and people have the right to use it. The road where people drive, they have the right to come through, and you can't, and you're going to be arrested or detained if you get in the way of that in yeah, the, any country. These constitutions no, strike not. me as so um, obviously simplistic. The whole point of our um, our, 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 our legal framework, our study of the, uh, our constitutional law is about the fact that rights conflict with each other and that right. human beings have various rights that all conflict with each other and how to negotiate those and how to rank those to preserve maximum freedoms from everybody. So just saying, yes, I have a right to do this and I have a right to do this, I mean, that's why, like, you can't talk to some people about gun reform because they just will robotically be like, but the Second Amendment says, but the Second Amendment says, well, I also have a right to life and freedom and not to be shot in the head by some lunatic simply because there is no restrictions on a crazy person or someone who's in the throes of addiction or anybody or someone who's committed a bunch of crimes or someone who's a wife abuser or all these things sure. from ever getting a weapon. So the hard conversation is not just asserting that people have different rights, well, but to, in situations where rights conflict, make choices about what we actually prioritize in this country. And I just think it's interesting that in the United States of America, I think we made the right decision to prioritize speech rights, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it means Nazis march through a, Jew a Jewish neighborhood. And here in Argentina, this libertarian leader uh, is making different kinds of choices. The, I don't know that he's making different kinds of choices that we're making here with respect to protesters in the streets. The gun analogy is apt because the issue is, I mean, I don't—crazy uh, people, violent people, dangerous people, uh, yes, the Second Amendment certainly comes with limits, and we do want to— deny firearm access to uh, people who are going to harm other people with guns. The difficult, no, the, <laughs> the U.S. government. Let me, fin let me finish my okay. point. The problem is that the, the, if we broadly, it is taking away guns from law-abiding citizens who ha should have, do have and should have the right to own and use firearms and are not a danger to anyone, which is the overwhelming majority of people who have guns, and how do we craft laws that don't unduly burden them, violate their rights, while also while keeping guns out of the hands of people we don't want to have them. I mean, that's the whole difficulty, right? It's, a, it's, it's, not, that, it's not that the right is absolute. It's that 
it ought, it ought to be pretty absolute for a lot of people, but then there are some people who can't, who can't exercise this right at all, and figuring right. out and having a policy that anticipates that is very difficult. Robbie, there have been decades of largely conservative advocacy groups pushing back against common-sense gun legislation. And there have been decades of progressive prosecutors not bringing illegal gun crime charges against people who have weapons illegally and commit crimes with them Robbie, and, and should be denied. And, and that's a whole problem with— Criminal prosecution of people who have committed crimes, as much as you might disagree with those prosecutors' choices, is an entirely different issue than what the law should be about access to guns. Those are two different issues. People, right. People who— have weapons illegal? What are you saying? People who I'm saying people who have weapons illegally that should be prosecuted. So on one side you have people largely left leaning who say we need common sense gun reform. They want to take guns away from everyone, people, and I want to take guns away from. Criminals. They literally don't. They literally don't. You guys keep people keep saying that. Well, Nobody does. <laughs> There's one side that says common sense gun reform. There's another side that says no. I have an absolute freedom to the Second Amendment. Oh, that's a so straw getting back. Man. Okay, go ahead. Get, getting back to this issue, the whole point is that it's the absoluteness that's the problem. And now we're seeing what it means for someone to have these—because there's no such thing as—if you're absolute, what you're doing is you're saying, absolutely, I don't care about someone else's freedom. You're, you're clearly privileging one freedom over another. And that's what you're seeing with Mela, who's very clearly now saying the right to protest is subordinate to the right to drive to work. And so we'll see where, how, how far this goes. Um, how far the protests are able to, you know, whether people show an incredible bravery to continue to protest um, when the people who are protesting are largely going to be those who are most negatively affected by these austerity policies, the poor, the disenfranchised, who cannot afford to have the limited government resources that are still available to them stripped away from them. Um, it's an incredibly heroic thing to continue to protest in the midst of an authoritarian um, governmental regime. Um, so we'll continue to follow the story and see what happens to the people of Argentina. Seventy-five percent of Americans are still going for President Joe Biden in a recent Kinnipiac survey. Democratic primary poll, the poll found that 2024 Democratic candidate Marianne Williamson is in second place with 13 percent of support, followed by Dean Phillips holding at 5 percent. Now, Marianne Williamson is calling out the Massachusetts Democratic Party over ballot access after the state's party submitted only President Biden's name for the state's Super Tuesday presidential primary ballot per Politico. Williamson wrote on X, Dem Chair Steve Kerrigan's misplaced attempt at protecting Joe Biden robs Massachusetts Democrats of their voice and choice in the upcoming election. This action is a flagrant violation of DNC rules and processes. Meanwhile, Democratic candidate Dean Phillips took to X this week to share some of his policy views, writing, Medicare for all is a centrist, common-sense solution to our unaffordable sick care disaster, with 26 million uninsured, 90 million underinsured, the highest prices in the world, and mid-pack outcomes. We should be embarrassed. We ensure public education for all and must ensure health coverage for all, period. Journalist Mehdi Hassan responded in agreement with Phillips Post, writing, this is the centrist Dem congressman who is primarying Joe Biden. He won't win, but what he's saying about Medicare for all is 100 percent correct. If only Biden would say it, it would be morally and financially the right thing to say and would help him with progressives and young voters. Yeah. As for the Dean Phillips Medicare for all, nobody cares. He's been in Congress for years, has never signed on to this Medicare for all legislation that uh, I think Jayapal has been putting in now 
for like many, many congressional cycles. This is a clear effort to, at this late stage in the game, distinguish himself from Joe Biden. Nobody's buying it. It's performative, and it's a bid to get the youth vote. The youth vote, which I would add, is overwhelmingly with candidates like uh, Cornel West and Jill Stein and Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson, meanwhile, at 13 percent, we should have said 75 percent of Democrats are still going for Joe Biden, not uh, Americans overall. That's obviously not true. Um, but while Biden still has a lock on Democrats, not surprising since there's no Democratic primary, she's still holding very strong at 13 percent, which, as I pointed out many times, is way better than most of the Republican candidates on the other side of the aisle. And yet those Republican candidates get full hearing on liberal shows like MSNBC and CNN that repeatedly give them town halls, one-on-ones and the like, whereas Marion Williamson is shuttled off into a corner of the Internet and so-called free speech heroes like Elon Musk that once promised to give her at least a platform on their alternative media uh, outlets have also lied about that and declined to do so. All of that. And she's still doing so much better than Dean Phillips. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah, he should have had her on. Uh, we've obviously had her on a number of times. Happy to do so again, uh, because we want to actually allow um, dissent and alternative candidates to speak their mind. Um, we've had Cornell West on. We've had Jenk on. We're, we've had Robert F. Kennedy on. And, and so forth. So I do think it's remarkable that she's managed to stay in there, despite, you're correct, the absolute, near absolute, I, th I think she's been on CNN or MSNBC maybe once or twice, but a, a near total blackout of her candidacy among mainstream and liberal media outlets, um, people's television screens, they don't get to see or hear from her. Um, yeah, I mean, on the Republican side, you're, you're right that there has been much more voice given to the non-Trump people. Um, I mean, now we're at the point where, I mean, Trump isn't at 75 percent versus all the, the rest. Um, and Nikki Haley doing okay now in some of the polling, still not anywhere, not near Trump, but, you know, getting closer there. Um, but that's not to excuse anything they're doing on the other side to absolutely silence Marianne, especially including the actual primary voting, trying to, you know, keep her off the ballot. Um, I mean, that's as Democrats' favorite new tactic. <laughs> we'll just we'll just not have people on the yeah. ballot. So we won't we won't we won't bother you. We won't sully your day with the opportunity to vote for anyone but Biden. Because it was not a new tactic tactic at all, as some Green Party sure. folks have been pointing out, the Democratic Party has weaponized ballot access to extreme extents routinely. Um, for example, most recently, off the top of my head, Matthew Ho, who was running for Senate in North Carolina, uh, had to go up against Hillary Clinton attorney Mark Elias law firm uh, in their efforts to challenge every signature, every name, uh, and keep them in courts when he should have been campaigning. And of course, the Green Party doesn't have nearly as many resources as Hillary Clinton and the DNC and various arms of her in their outreach. So this is a strategy that is largely kept from the American public that has been used to continue the facade of there being only two options, no matter how unpopular those options are. Our uh, two-headed, uh, monstrous uh, corporate duopoly will continue to force it down our throats if people don't report on all of the ways that they are very much undermining democracy. And all the ways they're very much dissent on the issues among these other candidates, offering, you know, on the Democratic side, offering more progressive economic policies of markedly different foreign policy, obviously hitting Biden from the left on those things. Um, there is debate and dissent on foreign policy on the Republican side, too. I wish Trump was participating in these debates so we would actually know what he thinks more substantively, frankly, about uh, Ukraine and Russia and Israel-Palestine. Uh, we're hearing a lot from Nikki Haley, Vivek, and Ron DeSantis on it, but I'd like to know what Trump thinks about it. I guess we'll have to save that for the 
to the garden variety normal debates between him and Biden, if there even are any, if these two, <laughs> these two heads of the, of the Hydra could even be bothered to have a conversation with each other and to be held to account by the American people. Um, it, it seems like there are a lot of, a lot of forces that have conspired to thwart that um, so far. But, uh, We're going to get to the see. general election, and Biden's going to say, here, Gavin Newsom can debate on my behalf. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and Trump will say, to sanctimonious, get on out no, no, here. No, no, He'd pick Vivek. Get on out He'd here. He'd pick Vivek. Yeah, yeah, Trump surrogate uh, Vivek. That does it for us for today. We're going to be taking a little bit of a holiday break, but don't worry, we will be back with you for at least part of next week. I think we're still working that out. Christmas and New Year's on a, on a Monday is uh, just throwing a wrench into everything, but we will have some fresh content for you next week. And of course, tomorrow, Jessica Burbank and Amber Duke will be with you for your regular Rising Fridays content. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. So long. Take care.